Let's take our Bibles for a few moments and let's turn over to Genesis chapter number 42 and uh, let's get in God's Word because that's where we find the ultimate lifting, amen? And so from the Scriptures tonight, we look at Genesis chapter number 42. Now I wish that I could come to you tonight and say that we've got a, a nice, uh, you know, fluffy message for you, but there's going to be some difficult things that we've got to look at in God's Word tonight. But with His help, we'll be able to understand them. And um, and so in Genesis chapter number 42, I don't want to read the whole chapter for time's sake, but I do want to draw your attention down to verse number 21. And I want you to see the words that we read here. Now, for those who might uh, not know where we're at in Genesis 42, we're in the life of Joseph. And Joseph uh, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Very cruel thing they did. They had no idea that all this time had passed, and now Joseph has been made second in command under Pharaoh himself. And Joseph went through a great ordeal. He, has, he suffered false accusations. He stayed in prison in the ward for many years. He was forgotten there by the butler. Yes, for those who have been with us, you know who the butler is. He's the butler and uh, the baker. And so uh, Joseph was forgotten there for a couple of years. And Pharaoh dreamed a dream. And through that dream, he dreamed of seven cows, and he dreamed of seven ears of corn, and through that dream, Joseph was brought out of the prison to interpret that dream for Pharaoh with God's help, and he gave God glory for the interpretation of that dream. And when Pharaoh heard the wisdom of Joseph, he appointed him and selected Joseph to be over the seven years of plenty in light of the seven years of famine that would come. Now Joseph has seen those seven years of plenty, and the famine has certainly come just as he said it would from Pharaoh's dream. Now the trouble is, this was a worldwide famine in his day. The whole known world suffered from this famine. And as Joseph sits on the throne, really second in command under Pharaoh, ordering the affairs of selling all the grain, the ends of the earth are coming to him to look for food. And now his brothers, his own brothers, the same ones that sold him into slavery all those years ago, I presume that Joseph probably took up his post close to Memphis, not Tennessee, no, Memphis in the Nile area, and that Delta region. I suppose that he sat there on purpose because he was looking towards Canaan. And he remembered his dream, and in fact in Genesis 42 you'll read those very words, that Joseph remembered his dream now that dream goes all the way back to chapter 37. His brothers made fun of him for that dream. Because in that dream, his brothers would bow down before him and make obedience to him. Joseph remembered his dream when he saw them and recognized them. But you know, as an Egyptian, they didn't know who he was. He had been shaven and, and his garments were different. There was no way they could recognize Joseph. And yet there were ten of them there and Joseph certainly picked them out of the crowd and remembered his brothers. So they come to him, and he deals harshly with them at first. And there's a reason for that. Because Joseph was testing his brothers. He wanted to see if they really had repentance in their heart for how they had treated him before. And to see if there was, by chance, some way that they had changed over the years, or if they were still the rotten scoundrels that threw him to the Ishmaelites and sold him into slavery. Has there any change happened? Well, we read verse 21, And they, the ten brothers, they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother. Who are they talking about there? They're talking about Joseph. They know they're guilty. 
Now, Joseph didn't bring any of this up, mind you. And they don't know that he's listening. See, they think that as an Egyptian, he can't understand them. Because he's been speaking through an interpreter this whole time. So he's, he's kind of incognito. He's under the radar. And uh, they don't know that he can understand everything they're saying. And they begin to pour their heart out and say, We are verily guilty. That's surely. We are surely guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us. When Joseph was thrown in the pit by them, he was crying out to them for mercy. And they would not listen to him. They would not give him any help, any mercy. And the, the Bible says, We would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. What distress? Well, the chapter records how Joseph had them put in prison for three whole days. He had all ten of them locked up. And then, I don't know if it was just he changed his mind somewhere along the way or he came up with a better plan. Originally, he was going to keep all ten of them there until the family came. But he said, you know, I'm going to do something different here. You can leave one of them. One of, your, one of the ten has to stay back in Egypt because I want to prove your words. You're telling me you've got a father and a brother back in Canaan, and I think you're spies. Joseph is thinking they're spies, and he's accusing them of that. So false accusation. What did Joseph suffer at their hands? Well, he suffered false accusation, didn't he? Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of something he didn't do. And he suffered in prison. Now, they only had to spend three days there. Joseph had to spend years in prison. And before we think that Joseph is being too harsh on them, let's remember that God is the one behind the workings here, using Joseph to ultimately prove them and try them. And so Reuben, verse 22, answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? Now if we go back to chapter 37 where Joseph was thrown in the pit, we know Reuben had good intentions, didn't he? But he had his other brothers to deal with. I mean, it's one against uh, 11 here. Well, 10, really. It's one against the other 10. And Reuben's, Reuben's, uh, he, he's, he goes out and he says, don't hurt him. We'll figure out what to do later. But by the time he comes back, the brothers have already sold Joseph and Reuben can't do anything about it. But here he reminds them, hey, I wasn't for what you guys were doing to begin with. Don't you remember that? I warned you. I told you. Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them. Joseph did. He turned himself about and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes." So the other nine, Simeon is going to stay back and Joseph binds him. He ties him up and says, Simeon, you are staying here. And the others are going to go back. Now, as they journey, uh, I think that we see a little bit of their guilty conscience here. And isn't it interesting how the Lord uses memories sometimes? And He'll bring back those memories for a purpose. In counseling, many times I will try to help people and explain to them there's a big difference between guilt and and conviction. Guilt is typically from Satan. And it's the world, the flesh, and the devil fighting against us. And guilt would tell us that yes, we're wicked. Yes, we did something that we shouldn't have done. We're sinners. That's guilt. And we feel guilty and we feel shame from that. But what the devil won't do is offer you a way to get right. He wants you to stay guilty. He wants you to feel that weight of shame like you can never come before God ever again. But I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit works through conviction. 
And the guilt that we have because of our sin ought to bring us shame. But conviction then settles into our heart. And we realize that God is about restoration. He is about restitution. He is about reconciliation. And He wants us to be right with Him. And so He doesn't want us to continue in a state of shame. No, in our depravity we are shameful creatures. A wretched worm am I, the psalmist said. Who am I that God would even think upon me? Just a sinner. But He does. Because He loves us. And as He's reaching out, He is proving what will become the nation of Israel. And they've got to go through the fires of testing. And as they do, a little more dross will be burned off in their life. And they'll come forth like gold. And so there's a thought I'd like for you to hang on to tonight. Some words that John Newton wrote many years ago. There's a, there's a line in that song, Amazing Grace. You know the song. That line I want you to think about goes like this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. These men are scared to death. But can I tell you, it's not because of their shame that they ought to be afraid. No, it's by the grace of God that they have come face to face with their fears and this fear is going to set them free so that they can find forgiveness and reconciliation with their brother. And God's going to mend a broken relationship through the rest of this story. Really, if I had time tonight, we'd need to go through chapter 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48. You get it. There's a lot. All the way up to Genesis chapter 48, we see Joseph. Uh, there's going to be about three different trips that his brothers are going to make back and forth between Canaan and Egypt, coming back to Joseph. And Joseph, now you've got to understand this, for, uh, let's see, I don't know how many exactly years before this, but you remember God promised Abraham some things about his descendants. If you go back to Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15, in that passage where God gave Abraham the covenantal promises, He informed him prophetically that his descendants would spend, anybody want to venture a guess? Do you know the answer? How many years would his descendants spend in bondage in Egypt? What was the prophecy? 400 years. So, let's connect that dot. Joseph now is God's instrument for good. Joseph is God's man to get the promises that he made to Abraham fulfilled as Joseph will be the one who ushers his family down into Egypt. Joseph makes the way for God's promises. What a beautiful story as it unfolds before us. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand your word tonight in a powerful way. And I know that there are broken hearts that need to be bound up. There's a heaviness, Lord. There are memories that may come through our time tonight that only your grace can bring relief to. I ask, Lord, for the balm of Gilead to be applied to the soul that's in need of it. That through Jesus Christ we would see, Lord, that we would move away from any lukewarmness or apathy in our heart. That we would remember how good you are to us, Lord. And through trials and through difficulties, I pray, Lord, that your word would take preeminence and that you would magnify your word above all your name. And that we would find great hope and comfort through it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand how valuable our conscience is in this process of understanding your grace. Many times, Lord, 
that conscience can be seared and severed. And we can ignore that still small voice and go on about our sin and it doesn't bother us like it once did. Oh Lord, give us a tenderness towards sin tonight. Help us to see it as You do and to acknowledge it before You. Not hide in shame from it, but to acknowledge Your question all the way back to the very beginning. Wherefore art Thou? Lord, You desire us to be in Your presence in the fullness of light. And I thank You for the blood of Jesus Christ, Your Son, that cleanseth us from all sin. Help us to understand Your Word tonight, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I'll thank You for what You do. In Jesus' name, Amen. There was a mother that was helping her son with his spelling assignment one time. How many of you like to do your spelling assignments at night? I know I've got some, some uh, young, young children that don't like to do their spelling sometimes. and We have to, right? So, uh, I remember spelling. Spelling, I used to like spelling. I didn't get them all right all the time, but I thought I did okay in spelling. Well, this mother was helping her son with a spelling assignment, and she came to the word conscience and the word conscious. And uh, so she, she asked him if he knew the difference between the two. You know, conscious is spelled C-O-N-S, see I can't even spell it tonight, C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S, that's conscious, right? And then the other word is conscience, think conscience, C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. And so mom asked, do you know the difference between those two? And uh, he responded, well sure mom, yeah, yeah I know the difference. Well conscience is when you're aware of something, and conscience is when you wish you weren't. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, I thought. The conscience. There was a, a, an Indian chief one time that described the conscience like a, uh, how did he say it? He, he said it was a, a, uh, like a sharp square peg in our hearts. And if we're confronted by a questionable situation, that square begins to turn and its corners cut into our hearts warning us with an inward sensation against doing whatever confronts us. Then he went on to say, if the conscience is ignored over time, the corners of the square are gradually worn down, and it virtually becomes a circle. I thought that was a good picture of how our conscience can do this. There was a, there was a pirate. You, you guys will like this story about a pirate. That Well, you won't like this part of it because he got caught. And they, uh, they were going to execute him in New York. Well, he, he began to confess. And one of the things that he said was he could remember the very first ship he ever raided. He could remember the very first time he took a man's life and looted and, plund- and plundered and pillaged. And he said he, could, he couldn't sleep at night. That first time, it just ate him up. All the guilt, all the shame from it. But he said after time, it got easier and easier and easier. That was his final confession before they executed him for all his piracy. And he terrorized the Caribbean area and the, and the South Americas and all of that. Notorious. And he met his end with a guilty conscience. But you see, his testimony was that over time, his conscience wore down. And he severed his conscience. Paul talks about our conscience being seared with a hot iron because we go after things. You know, you can do something and it ought to bother you but if you do it again and again and again, you build up a you build up a, a desensitivity to it. I should probably say it like that. You become desensitized, and it doesn't bother you like it once bothered you. Can we stay tender to God? We see this in in uh, Reuben and the other brothers. Now, as I studied through this passage, there were some things that stood out to me that 
really speak to our growth in faith. Going back to that phrase, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." As these men confront their fears, they know that God is their sin is finally catching up with them. It doesn't they don't need Joseph to tell them that God is doing these things. They just know. They just know that God now because of what they had sown all those years before, now that is catching up and they're paying for their sins. And Reuben acknowledges that I want you to notice some things tonight as we look at Genesis 42. I've already given you context, and so we're in the middle of the life of Joseph, and he is ruling now and helping the world. He is saving many people through his effort because of his wisdom to lay up for the seven years of uh, plenty to be able to distribute in the seven years of famine. I want you to notice the pressures of providential circumstance. Look at verse 1 and 2 if you would. The Bible says, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? <laughs> now get this picture in your mind. They're in Canaan. And I think it's interesting how the Scriptures put it. Because here they are. They're just kind of sitting there staring at each other. Yeah, what do you want to do today? I don't know. I'm pretty hungry. You pretty hungry? Yeah, I'm pretty hungry too. Why are you sitting here staring at each other? Joseph. Now what is the one, two, three? What's the fourth word into verse number one? Saw. All right. Saw. Now that is saw as in perceived. That's not saw like with the teeth where you cut wood with it, guys, okay? He saw. Now this word is ra'a. It comes from the Hebrew word to see, but it means to perceive. Uh, To see here, Joseph saw. Why do I say that? Because look at verse number 2 and it'll answer the question. And he said, Jacob said, behold, I have, and what's the next word there? Did you know that you can see by hearing? Now think that through. It'll take a moment to sink in. Use your ears to see. Blind people do this, don't they? They use other senses to be able to perceive what's going on around them. And so, somehow, someway, Jacob here gets word, and I think that somebody shared with him some good news, or he saw somebody coming with some caravans and said, what's all that? Where'd you find all that grain? Oh, it's down in Egypt. And so he heard that there was food in Egypt. I liked how J. Vernon McGee applied this. If you listen to his Through the Bible radio program, he does a good job on uh, this application. Uh, he, he applied it to uh, faith. How, how in the world can we believe? Well, the Scriptures say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But an atheist doesn't believe in God. So how do we believe? Well, the Bible also says in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17, Faith cometh by you know the verse. And hearing by the Word of God. Jacob heard and he believed. See, now that's just a simple thing, but doesn't it show us a spiritual application? Have you heard how good the Lord is? Have you heard how He sent His Son from heaven to die on the cross for your sins? Have you believed that Jesus Christ in place as though He were you for you, taking all your sin and all your guilt and all your shame, nailing it upon His cross, Through faith in Him, we're set free. You see, had Jacob just shrugged it off and said, I don't believe it. You know, I've heard that there's food down there, but I don't believe it. They would have died. They would have died in the famine. You see, by faith, by just a simple act like this, he's relying on what he's heard. Now, granted, that illustration breaks down a little bit, doesn't it? Because these are the fallible words of men. But what we're dealing with, and faith cometh by hearing, is the infallible Word of God. Jesus Christ 
said himself, I am the bread of heaven. And we're in a spiritual famine before we find Christ. Our souls are hungry and void, and there's an emptiness within us that only Jesus Christ can fill. And so as we come to the Lord by faith, we find out He is the bread of life. Amen? And He satisfies the longing of our soul. But the pressures of providential circumstance, why do I call them providential circumstances? Because God's moving them to Egypt. And He's using famine to do so. Think about your own life as you walk for the Lord. If you've walked for Him for any length of time, many times God will use things like famine. He'll use trying circumstances. He'll use dried up finances. He'll use difficulties with others around you to show you closed doors where you're at because He's moving you from one place to another. I remember when God called us away from Pensacola. We didn't want to leave. It was a great place to be. We had a great church. We had, you know, we had the college there. We had a school that would be great for our children. We, wanted, we didn't really have any desire to leave Pensacola. But door after door began to close. And God was prompting us and urging us away. And we prayed and sought the Lord. And He confirmed through peace and grace and, and other means. And also through other people. Good godly counselors along, along the way. That He wanted us here. In this area of northwest Denver. And so we followed Him by faith out here to minister the Gospel. And we've never looked back since. It's been a great journey. And God's taken care of us all along the way. But had we stayed in Pensacola, I don't know if I could have the same testimony. I'm sure God would have taken care of us, but He probably would have had to work on me pretty hard if I was that obstinate and stubborn to not be able to realize the still small voice and the tender and the grace that He was giving us to get us from one place to another because we were so rooted there, you know. We, we, we were settled down there. We were getting ready to make a family there. And God says, nope, not here. And He moves us on. So Jacob and his family have to get to Egypt because it was prophesied. And God's Word will be fulfilled. So these providential circumstances, you see them come, and it's through great pressure. Don't ignore the pressures that may be from God moving you to where you can be in the center of His perfect will. As you go, just be careful to give Him glory. See, Joseph is already representing Israel down in Egypt. And I think it's interesting to note how many people come to know God through Joseph. You have to kind of see this as you read the story about his life. But time and time again, you will, you will encounter Joseph and then you'll see someone there with him. For instance, he has a servant with him that he's going to give instructions on how to work with his brothers as they go back to Canaan. And his servant is going to come back eventually and tell them, yeah, I know God. I had all your money. I had all of that. I, I was following Joseph's instructions. See, Joseph's life impacted others to bring them to a knowledge of God. Everyone knew that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. That's why Joseph prospered, because God's hand was on him. And it was evident to see that God was very much a part of his life. Joseph never forgot God. He remembered his dream, that God had shown him before what would, what would come to pass. And the very same words are used as you see his brothers bowing down before him and making obedience to him. It's the same Hebrew word in chapter 37 when he had that dream. So it's connected. What God said would come to pass. Do you believe God's word? Do you have faith to see? Can you see how pressures in life might be moving you through providence? 
because God might be trying to get you where He wants you to be able to bring Himself glory through you and the furtherance of the Gospel. Faith cometh by hearing. Notice they're going to find food in the famine. Verse 3, Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. Now there's twelve of them, right? And Dinah's the thirteenth. She's the daughter. And so there's twelve sons of Jacob. Joseph is not. Well, yes, he is. But they don't know that. Joseph does, Jacob doesn't know that Joseph is alive. And so one of them's already down in Egypt. Ten of them are going to go down now. Why? Because Benjamin's going to stay back. Jacob's not ready to let Benjamin go. Why would this be? Well, I think his brothers have made their bed. Those other ten that are going to go down, Jacob knows. Can I tell you, there's some, sometimes, uh, sometimes parents just know. We might not be able to quite put our finger on it. I think old Jacob's like that here. You remember that fateful day that we read about in chapter 37 after his brothers threw him in the pit? How did they cover it up? Well, they took his coat of many colors that dad had given him. They killed a kid of the goats and they smeared blood all over it. They just brought it to Jacob and said, Dad, what's this? So it's all good, right? It's all covered over. Nobody's the wiser. Oh, Jacob just came to the conclusion that Joseph had been slain and killed on the message, you know, as he sent him up to go check on his brothers. It was all Jacob's fault that Joseph fell among trouble and got killed. He has no... He can't blame the brothers for it because he doesn't have proof. But I'll tell you, I think old Jacob's wiser than we think he is. Old Dad knows. And this is proof of it right here because he says, Benjamin, you're not taking him down there. Uh Uh-uh. Not again. I've already been bereaved of one of my children and I'm not going to let that happen again. So even though he can't quite blame them, I think deep down inside he knows they had something to do with what went on with Joseph's disappearance. Hey, just keep in mind, mom and dad know sometimes. We can't quite put our finger on it, but God gives intuition. And we might be able to to see some of that. They're, they're going to find food in the famine. They're going to go down to buy corn in Egypt. Benjamin is not going to be sent with them. And the sons of Israel, note the name Israel here, came to buy corn among those that came for the famine, was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land. He it was that sold to all the people of the land. Out of all the people that are down there, think about this providential meeting. I mentioned I think Joseph took up his uh, his place of business there in Memphis on purpose because he's out there looking towards Canaan. Reminded me of another father that was looking for his son to return. See, the faith of Joseph even comes through in that, doesn't it? Because he believes God is going to use him, that now he's in this position to see Israel come down and fulfill the very word of God. They're going to find food in the famine. I want you to notice, beginning in verse number 6, all the way down to verse number 28. Not only do we see the pressures of providential circumstance, we also see the pain of a proven conscience. The pain of a proven conscience. Proven there, I mean tested. This conscience, the conscience of his brethren, are going to be tested. And it's going to be tested through pain. There's going to be painful memories. If we read verse 6 and and just skim on down, we see there's a lot of remembering going on. Verse number 9, Joseph remembered the dreams. See, those were memories that Joseph had that reminded him that God's still moving and working. And then he works with his brothers and deals with them harshly. He calls them spies. Now, 
we might think spies. Is this a military campaign? You know, we think of covert operations and those kind of things, spy academy and all the stuff that we listen to with Patch the Pirate and his, and his uh, stories. No, that's not the kind of spies that he's making them out to be. In the east, in the Asiatic areas where Canaan is, in this day and time, it was known that, that people would come and they would spy out the land in this sense. And that's what Joseph is blaming them for. Not that they're coming to try to uh, amass a military conquering of Egypt. That's not what Joseph's concerned about. What he's looking for are people that are going to come through and see where the storage barns are. And then when they go back home, they're going to tell their buddies. And in the middle of the night, they're all going to get their torches and their pitchforks and however you want to imagine it. And they're going to come down and raid all the barns and steal all the grain. And Joseph says, that's why you've come. You've come to see where everything is, to spy out the land, and to be able to to walk here and there, and to to be able to strategize on how you're going to come and raid and take all of this grain that we're helping everyone with. They said, no, no, that's not true at all. That's not why we came. Now, one of the things I noticed here is, if you read chapter 42 and you don't keep reading, you're going to think that they just automatically started spilling all the beans. No, we've got a dad back home and we've got a brother back home and we've got all this back home in Canaan and we're not spies. We promise you we're not here to do any damage. We just want to come get food so we can live. You go read chapter 43, you find out. When they get back to dad, we get a little more details. Because dad basically says, why in the world did you open your big mouth? parents we never have to worry about our children saying anything you know that would kind of put a put their their shoe leather in their tongue huh no we don't have dad saying why did you spill all the beans to joseph why did you well you go read it and their answer is because asking he asked us he asked us intensely i mean so as joseph was dealing with them harshly You've seen the good cop get bad cop kind of thing, right? Where they put you down under the spotlight and one of you make, makes you sweat and the other one comes in and offers you some water and the other one makes you sweat until they, they break that confession out of you. I don't think that they just offered up this information. I think Joseph worked with them to be able to get it out of them because he knew them. He knew they had a dad. He knew they had another brother. And so he was able to get that information out of them and they were able they were able then to share with him, yeah, we do have our father back home. But that was something interesting that I noted, because if you read chapter 42, again, it just looks like they came forward and spilled the beans with no prompting. They didn't do it. They just gave it all, gave up all the information. Well, no, Joseph was working with them. What does that show us? It shows us the wisdom that Joseph has, in that he is understanding better what God is doing in this situation. From his vantage point, he is being used as God's instrument to prove them and to try them and to test them to see if their conscience really is bothering them. And we read it in verse number uh, verse number 21 and following, it's eaten them alive. Joseph didn't bring up these memories, but there's painful memories. Painful memories. And Reuben is saying, all those years ago we did this, now it's catching up with us. God is requiring Joseph's blood at our hands. See, they don't know this is Joseph. They think Joseph is is gone. It's catching up with us. Painful memories. A pricked conscience. We continue reading. And in verse number 25, Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack. 
Now I want you to pay attention to this because Joseph has grace toward them. They don't understand it. Hey, let's let's illustrate it this way. Let's pretend like you had to go do some grocery shopping. You like to go to the grocery store, right? You're going to head over here to King Super, and you're going to fill your cart up, and you're going to go up and get all the goodies. You know, all the pop tarts and all the all the all the good stuff from the freezer section and the ice cream. And it doesn't matter what kind it is; it's all the favorite kind anyway. And so, just ice cream galore, and your cart's filled with all this sugar that you really shouldn't eat, and all these goodies. And you go to pay for it, and you check out. You go through the line and you pull out mom's credit card because that's how you're going to pay for all this junk food. And and then, you know, the card gets swiped and you load it all into the car and somebody carts it home for you and you get it all unloaded. And lo and behold, when you get the credit card statement, you find out that $450 grocery bill, well, it's, uh, it's actually showed up in your account. So you just made out of the grocery store and you got all your food and they just gave it to you. You didn't know it was the manager's special on that day. That's a huge manager special, by the way. They don't know. But that's how it worked out for them. Joseph tells his servant, he says, put all their corn, put all the grain in one sack, all their provisions, and then also all the money they paid for it, put it back in their other bag. There's two two sacks they're carrying. One's filled with grain, the other's with their, their traveling stuff. And so they get down the road a ways, it dawns on them, uh-oh, we're in trouble. We're, what they think is they're being set up. Because Joseph had accused them of being spies in the land. And now what are they going to do? If they turn around and go back, they're going to get locked up for treason. And it's going to be proven. What are they going to, They're not going to have a leg to stand on because they've got all their money and they've got all the grain, and now they're in trouble. So what do they do? Well, they continued on home because they can't go back without Benjamin anyway. They've got to get Benjamin. So they go back and they're going to try to work with Dad. Dad, we've got to get Benjamin back there. Reuben is the first one who stands up and says, Hey, Dad, uh, you know there's only nine of us now, right? Can you count? Um, One of us is missing. Do you know which one? Anybody want to venture a guess who stayed behind? I referenced him earlier. Joseph Joseph bound him before his brothers. I read the commentaries and... Commentary after commentary says, we don't know why he picked Simeon. So I have to agree with that. I really don't know. (laughs) The text is silent on why he picked Simeon. But let me look back on Simeon's life here for a few minutes. Simeon did some very wicked things. If you go read Genesis 37, it does not say Simeon's name. But some of the wording is almost identical with the murmuring, the talking amongst themselves that was going on when Simeon and Levi decided to go take it out on the Shechemites for what they did to Dinah. The same kind of talk was happening. I just guess, okay? And I don't have, again, I can't prove this, but my guess is, number one, it's logical because if you have Reuben and he's already confessed, Reuben's the one that's responsible for everybody, we're going to pick Simeon because he's the second born after Reuben, right? So it makes sense to pick Simeon, but I think there's more. Just suppose, okay? I want to emphasize, suppose. (laughs) Supposition now. Don't quote me on this. But back at that pit encounter, when they were talking amongst one another, hey, let's, uh, let's kill him. Let's throw him in the pit. You go read the language. I wonder if the, the rabbins weren't, onto something in their writings when they blame Simeon for 
Joseph winding up in the pit. So I think there's more going on here that Joseph is singling out Simeon for a deeper purpose. <laughs> Simeon is going to have to stay back now, and Joseph's going to get a real opportunity through this time. And, then, and I'm, again, I'm just guessing with all of this, but I think there's a reason why Joseph picked Simeon. I really do, even though I don't know exactly why. But Simeon's the one that gets bound and he has to stay back. Dad, there's only nine of us here, ten of us left. <laughs> We've got to go back and get Simeon. Simeon would also be real easy to leave behind, wouldn't he? So you can understand Jacob saying, Benjamin, Simeon, no way, no deal. Sorry, Simeon. <laughs> Simeon is not going to have good things prophesied about him in Genesis 49 when it comes to that passage where Jacob is blessing his children. Jacob doesn't favor Simeon. He doesn't smile on Simeon. And so for, for them to be saying, Dad, you've got to give us Benjamin. We've got to go get Simeon. Dad's going, uh-uh. I don't think so. Not on my watch. Not this time. I've already lost another one. You want to take this one too? He's not going. So the brothers wind up staying back as long as they can before they come back to Egypt. And finally, Reuben, you know, Reuben initially stood up to Dad and said, Dad, let me take him. You know, if anything happens to him, then you can kill my boys. That's pretty strong. That's what Reuben said. Jacob said, no way. Why? Because Reuben had ruined his testimony prior to this. Remember how he messed up? Yeah, go read it. And so Reuben and Jacob, they're not on good terms either. And Reuben has already ruined his testimony, and Jacob's not going to let Benjamin go with him. And we're leading up to getting, getting to the place in Judah's life where he shines the greatest that will ever shine. He comes down to it, and Jacob, they're getting hungry again. All the grains run out. They've got to go, they've got to go back to Egypt to go get more food. And Jacob finally gives in and he says, if it has to be this way, then Judah, you can take him down. Take Benjamin, but he's going with you. And Judah puts his neck on the line for Benjamin. And he says, if anything happens to him, then let me be guilty for the rest of my life. Dad, we've got to go get food. And Jacob says, all right, take him down. So Benjamin comes back, and Joseph recognizes him right away. They have the big dinner, right? Joseph sees him coming, and he says, kill the fatted calf and get everything ready. We're going to have a big smorgasbord dinner, and it's going to be at high noon, and we're going to all sit around the table. Well, Benjamin gets so much, he can't even eat it all. He gets five times as much as the other brothers when they sit around the table. Because Joseph recognized him and favored him. Now, it's going to continue on, and there's going to be a worse mess that comes out of it. But through this, I want you to notice, Joseph is picking up on his brother's that God has really been working on them all these years. We're talking about decades. Decades are catching up to them now. And God has been working on them, and Joseph sees clearly. They're sorry for what they did. They have, they, they have brought forth fruit, meat for repentance. And that brings me to my third and final thought for you here tonight. The proof of fruits, meat for repentance. As they come back and work with Joseph, there's no question these boys have changed. And I say boys, but these are grown men. These men have had a change in their heart and a change in their life. They're not the same that they were when they threw Joseph in the pit. God is getting them ready and He's purging them and He's 
He's proving them and He's testing them. Why? Because these will become the twelve tribes of Israel. And God will raise up a nation through these men that will turn the world upside down for Jehovah. And it will become and see the glory of the Lord. The Shekinah glory will one day dwell in Israel. They've got to go through this purging to get there. One day, we're going to be with the Lord. And we're going to be glorified. We're going to be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Right? That's what the New Testament tells us as Christian believers. And we've not replaced Israel. God's program is still for Israel, and He's not finished with Israel. And He's going to use Israel through that great tribulation, through the the time of Jacob's trouble. He will once again use Israel to reach the ends of the earth with the good news. But right now, as the church, we've been grafted in. And we have the responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Knowing that this whole life is a process of sanctification. That as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, things are going to come. Pressures of providence are going to move us to be purged. Memories are going to come back. Sometimes painful memories. And remind us so that we don't forget from whence we were delivered. And so those might hurt, but never forget what Jesus did for you when He set you free from that when you found forgiveness of sins through His blood. These men are being purged. We're in a process of sanctification, looking forward to that glorification when one day we're with the Lord and a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. Sin will have no part in us whatsoever once we get to that place. But through through this time of sanctification, let's not turn a blind eye. Let's not live in a way that would sear our conscience. Let's stay tender to the things that the Holy Spirit might bring to our remembrance. You know, the Bible says God is light and Him is no darkness at all. We've got lights in here. You get into the light and you can see I got a nice bruise yesterday for moving stuff around. I didn't know that until I looked in the mirror today. You know, we look in the mirror of God's Word and it shows us, oh yeah, oh wow, oh, oh that's why that hurts. That's why there's pain. As we draw close to God, as we draw close to the light, you can expect that light to reveal things in your walk with God that He will bring to your memory, He will bring to your your, your remembrance. Let that work on you to bring you to the blood of Jesus Christ once again. And don't forget, 1 John 1.9 is still in the Bible for us as Christians. And it will always be in God's Word. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He's just. Every time He will do it. And it's right for Him to do it. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our advocate. He died in our place as though He were us for us. By the time you close chapter number 42, you see Jacob here. He's really in a woe is me moment. How many of you know the song Jesus Loves Me? This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, if Jacob had his chance to rewrite that, he'd probably be singing it like this. No one loves me, this I know, for my trials tell me so. The emphasis is all on Jacob because he can't see what God is doing. Joseph can't. 
And he's walking by faith and not by sight. But Jacob, all he sees is the grief. All he sees is the pain. All he sees is the sorrow. What did God use to bring about this quickening of conscience, this confession of the brothers of of Joseph? He used the pain of what they were dealing with in their conscience, the pain of all they were going through with the famine, God prodding them along. He used Joseph's harsh words to prick their carefully constructed defenses, one person wrote. The words had begun to get through, and now God uses solitude. You know, they were put in prison for three days straight to think about what they'd done. When you get time alone, that's time to think. That's time to meditate. And God uses solitude, physical imprisonment, and He set them apart from life's incessant trivial demands and gave them time to awake to His displeasure. It sinks in and we think, oh man, I really messed up. Sometimes solitude can help us come to that knowledge in this custody. One person who protested against this was A.W. Tozer. He was a great pastor in the city of Chicago some years ago. He expressed his concerns in a book called The Pursuit of God. How many of you have ever read that? It's a good book. You should read it sometime. I don't agree with everything that Tozer said and did, but Pursuit of God, that's a good devotional book. I would recommend it. He said, There can be no doubt that this possessive clinging to things is one of the most harmful habits in life because it's so natural, it's rarely recognized for the evil that it is. Things just cling to us. We need that solitude. We need to get away from that sometimes and just remember and think about God. And so he says its outworkings are tragic. Nor is it only the things that keep us from God. The frantic, busy pace of our lives keep us from God too, said Tozer. God must be cultivated in our heart. That takes time. The idea of cultivation. This is an exercise. And so, it was so dear to the saints of old. You know, we've got a generation that I think has forgotten how to do this. It has no place in our total religious picture. Slow motion. You know, this is... This, we can't deal with it. We've got to be fast-paced. We've, we have this on-demand kind of Christianity. Fast-flowing, dramatic action. A generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines. Now this was Tozer writing decades ago. I would say, you know, now we've got we've gone away from push buttons to push screens and sometimes just VR or whatever. A AR, you know, AI, what are they artificial intelligence? Self-driving cars, that's scary. And so as Christians, we need to think about how this might impact our walk with God. Are we impatient? We can't let things slow cook like it needs to. We've got to microwave everything. Microwave devotions. That'll get you about as much nutrition as microwave milk will. And so, you know, we get our Bible, read a short chapter. Okay, I did it for today. Go through the motions. Rush on. Hoping to make up our, our deep inward bankruptcy. Do we have... A walk with God that's deeper than that? No. Okay, well then we'll try, try to appease our conscience. I'll go to church a little more. I'll go to another gospel meeting. I'll go to this. I'll, you know, we'll, go, we'll go hear a great story from a missionary that just came back from you know, doing something great across the, the, the ocean or something. And, and so then that kind of 
feeds us again with that novel sense. Hey, all you need, God gave you right here. You don't have to go looking somewhere else. No, you just need to take time here and to be able to spend some solitude, maybe some confinement in the Scriptures. And it might take some time to where you don't just read a chapter, you actually go through a larger portion of Scripture and let it saturate you and let God change you from the inside out and feed you and fill your soul. Solitude is necessary for the Christian life and growth under any circumstances. To grow, we must spend time with God. We have to escape from our slavery to things. We have to step aside from the busyness of everyday life. And this is true for everyone in in the spiritual state. It's certainly true for one cherishing some distant, unconfessed sin, hoping that God's forgotten about it. He hasn't forgotten. God will deal with your soul, and He'll deal with your soul with gentleness, with grace, with forbearance, just like Joseph dealt with his brothers. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Speak, Lord, in the stillness, while I wait on Thee. Hushed my heart to live in expectancy. It's that stillness, that solitude, That's where you'll find that the still small voice and the conscience just might bring something back through the Holy Spirit that has put that barrier between you and God. That's where you'll deal with it. That's where you'll put it under the blood. And that's where God will open the floodgates and rain His grace upon your soul once again with refreshment and renewal might get back to a little bit more of normal in your Christian life. And by that I mean on fire for God.